Our scripture text comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 58, verses 9 through 14. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and God will say, I am here. If you remove the yoke from among you, the finger pointing, the wicked speech, if you open your heart to the hungry and provide abundantly for those who are afflicted, your light will shine in the darkness, and your gloom will be like noon. The Lord will guide you continually and provide for you. Even in parched places, he will rescue your bones. You will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water that won't run dry. They will rebuild ancient ruins on your account. The foundations of generations past you will restore. You will be called mender of broken walls, restorer of livable streets. If you stop trampling the Sabbath, stop doing whatever you want on my holy day, and and consider the Sabbath a delight, a sacred to the Lord, honored and honored instead of doing things your own way, seeking what you want and doing business as usual, then you will take delight in the Lord. I will let you ride on the heights of the earth. I will sustain you with heritage of your ancestor Jacob, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. One of my favorite things in seminary um, that I got to study was studying Hebrew. Now that has very little to do with anything, um, but in Hebrew, um, we had some, some special things that we got to do. For those of us who studied Hebrew, we took like a Hebrew class, and then we had the option of taking other classes, our Old Testament classes, either like normal track or Hebrew track. Um, and so I got to, to, to have the experience of taking a bunch of classes in Hebrew track. Now, if you think that sounds impressive, you may or you may not, just know that I did it because it was actually less work for me to take it Hebrew track than to take it normal track. Um, all I had to do was just translate extra, and that's really all all that I had to do for that class. Um, So it was really an enlightened self-interest. But one of the things that we studied in Hebrew, one of the, it was the the first or the second semester that we did in Hebrew, the the first book that we got to translate in its complete, like whole bookness, because it's not very long, was the book of Jonah. Um, Translating the book of Jonah gave me a very, very interesting and, and really deep love for this book. Um, some people like Jonah. Some, most people are familiar with it because, you know, as kids, we listen to stories about Jonah and the big whale. Um, I learned in Hebrew class that it wasn't a big whale. It was a big fish. Um, just to let you know, there is a difference in the Hebrew. Um, all sorts of things like that. I, I just I get a very deep and wonderful appreciation for the book of Jonah. And one of the most fascinating aspects of the book of Jonah for me um, is not the whale or the fish part. Um, that's interesting and gross and grotesque, and it makes very, very interesting imagery, as you can see on the screen in front of you. Uh, but what's interesting for me, the most interesting thing about the book of Jonah is, is how quickly the people of Nineveh respond to the call of God. So, so if you remember the story, right, Jonah has this existential crisis he's in the belly of the fish for three days. He gets spit up on dry land, and he finally decides to do what God asked him to do. And what he does is walk a day and a half's journey into Nineveh and say, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, and he walks out. That is the most effective and most short sermon in history. And what happens as a result is that the people respond. So what we hear about happening is that the people hear and the king begins to think, what are we going to do? God's going to overthrow Nineveh. It's not a, a conditional thing. It's not something that said, if you, don't, if you don't repent, God will overthrow Nineveh. It's just 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. 
And so the king begins to think and, and, and declares something for the people of Nineveh. He declares a fast. Uh, fasting has a, a very, very deep and long-seated tradition within, within the Hebrew scriptures. But in this particular instance, these, these non-Hebrews, these Ninevites say, guess what? Let's declare a fast. And the king says, maybe if we fast, maybe if we repent, maybe if we show our contrition, then God will hear and God will relent of the doom he has foretold. And so that's what he does. The king tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. He sits before God and he says, God, we are declaring a fast as the people of Nineveh. This fast is interesting because it's not just the people. It's not just the adults. It's the kids. And it's also all the livestock. Just, just picture this in your mind because this is what makes Jonah so interesting and funny. Right? It's not just people not eating food. It's, it's animals. It's cattle wearing sackcloth and ashes and fasting. The most remarkable thing about this, however, is that the Lord not just hears and sees the fast, but the Lord responds to the fast. The Lord sees what the people of Nineveh are doing. They're, they're fasting, they're, they're in contrition, they're humbling themselves, and God hears, and God responds. In fact, it says God repents. That is the Hebrew word, repent. Don't blame me, blame the Bible. God repents of the evil or the calamity he was going to bring on Nineveh and decides to spare them. This is what makes Jonah mad in the end. Okay, that's just the setup. Because this is deeply seated in, in sort of the history and the consciousness of the people of Israel. This idea of fasting, this idea of the effectiveness of fasting when it comes especially to personal and corporate sin. This is deep-seated, not just here in Jonah, but throughout the, the Hebrew scriptures, there is discussions of fasting, of, of people responding to, to crises in their lives brought on by themselves most of the time through a fast. They declare a fast, right? When, when David is confronted with his sin um, on uh, killing Uriah and having uh, an adulterous affair with Bathsheba, right? He's confronted with it. And the first thing he does is he begins to fast. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. He goes in mourning and in prayer and asks God uh, to not bring the calamity on his son because of his sin. So, so we know that, that fasting and the idea of fasting in, in response to God and, and in, in ways of, of, of showing God our contrition and our, our sorrow is, and, and, and having God respond is deeply, deeply seated within the people of Israel. So that's the setup. So, so let's go to, to Isaiah and, and the people who are responding to God in this text. So kind of the short, short version, Isaiah is a very long book and has very, very interesting stuff in it, but I'll give you the short version. We, we heard a little bit of it last week, right? God has come to the people of Israel and has essentially said to them, I thought things were going to be good with you, but they're not. I've done everything so that you would produce righteousness and you have not. Instead of righteousness, I have found bloodshed and injustice and oppression, and then in chapter 6, God says, basically, I'm going to burn it. There's judgment coming upon the people of Israel. God is upset with them, and God is going to bring judgment. It's conditional, right? They need to change. But that's really the, 
push of what God is doing. But, but the problem is in, in Israel is, is not so much that, um, that they see their, their, their problems, that they see what God is saying and repent. The, the problem in Israel is they don't seem to have any problem with what's going on. Uh, throughout, throughout Isaiah, this, this is the repeated refrain that the, the people think they're doing right, and yet God looks at it and says, how can you be so wrong? In what you're doing. And, and what we have in our text today is the end of chapter 58. That, that is God's response to the people. But, but how it begins is this. Essentially, the beginning of, of chapter 58 is God saying that people come and they come together and they worship and they take delight in me. They come together and they worship and they present this wonderful worship to me. And yet their hearts are far from me. So they, they, they say that they delight in the Lord, and yet, and yet they don't, really. And so when things go bad, what happens is the people cry out to God and say, God, we are doing all the right things. Why aren't you listening? In fact, as, as chapter 58 begins to go on, the people ask, God, why do we fast and you not see? God, why do we humble ourselves and you not care? God, we are doing all of these things in response to what's going on. We're, we're, doing, we're, we're fasting and we're, we're keeping Sabbath and we're doing all this stuff. And yet, God, you don't hear and you don't respond. What happens is the people are angry with God because the thing that they thought was going to work wasn't working. Right Deep in their consciousness, this idea if we fast, if we just sort of don't eat for a while, then God will listen. Deep in their consciousness, it's idea of if we perform these things, if we come together and, and worship when we're supposed to, then, then God will listen, then God will treat us nice. Or, or, or perhaps more deeply seated in their unconscious is if we just do these things, we will manipulate God into being okay with what we're doing. But the people at the beginning of chapter of 58 are angry with God because God doesn't seem to be doing what they want God doesn't seem to be reacting in the ways that they want or they expect to the things that they are doing. Why do we fast and you not see? Why do we humble ourselves and you not care? They're saying, God, our plates are empty. Surely now you should be doing what we want. God, surely now things should be getting better. God, we're fasting. Why aren't you blessing us? God, we're presenting all the right worship to you. And yet you do not hear. Deep-seated in that is an perhaps misunderstanding of what a fast is for. Because God comes back and says, you want to know why. Do you really want to know why I'm reacting the way I am? God essentially says to them this. Do you think I really care that you don't eat food? Do you think that's the fast that I'm really after? Do you think that I'm sitting up here just hoping that, that you'll spend a, a certain amount of time not eating and feeling sorry for yourselves? Is that really the fast I want? Am I really concerned God answers them that you, you bow down before me like a bulrush? Do you think it's really what I want? That you just do all the right things, go through all the right motions, worship all the right ways, and yet neglect weightier 
issues. What God essentially says, he says, you're coming to me with this fasting thing, but you're not doing what you think it's about. Or if some of you are familiar with this commercial, that's not how any of this works. God says to the people, he says, you're coming to me saying, we're fasting, we're fasting, we're fasting. You're supposed to be doing X, Y, and Z. And God comes back and says, but that's not how any of this really works. No, we should be fair, at least to God. God has told them why they should fast. God has told them why they should keep Sabbath. Now, there are some sort of religious reasons, right? Reasons of action that they are supposed to go through. But, but, but behind all those actions, behind the fasting, behind the Sabbath, God has said, you are to do this because you are to recognize me and my character. God talks about Sabbath as a way of saying, this is a gift to you. You were slaves for 400 years in Egypt. You worked and toiled every day of every week. But guess what? That is not my intention for you or for the rest of humanity. So take a day off and think about what I have done for you and the people. And God tells the people, when, when, you, when you fast, when you, when you take a Sabbath, guess what? It's not just you who shouldn't work. It's your servants. It's the foreigners among you. Whether or not they believe in what you believe in or not, the Sabbath is holy unto me, and you are to extend that to them as well. And of course, fasting is the same thing. God didn't just say, hey, you should just not eat one day a week. Or when things are rough or when you want me to do stuff for you, you should fast because I like it when you don't eat, and it makes me happy, so I'll bless you. No, God talks about fasting and in ways that, that connote that somebody is submitting themselves to Almighty God. I am fasting because I am wrong. You are right. Show me what is the way I should go. I am sorry for transgressing. But that's not what was happening in Israel at this time, at least not according to the prophet Isaiah. So here's God's response, and I think it bears reading directly. God says this to them. Look, you serve your own interests on your fast days and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast I choose, God says, a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow the head like a bulrush and lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day that is acceptable to the Lord? The rhetorical question and the statement there is, this is why you fast. You fast, and yet you're still angry with each other. You fast, and you still strike with a wicked fist. Is that what you think will make your voice heard? Do you think God will see your actions and be like, oh, well, at least they're not eating? Isaiah is saying something and God is saying that, that you do these things and yet you don't understand what it is I am calling you to do and to be. If we were to go back to next last week in Isaiah 5 where God comes to his vine and expects good grapes, the grapes of God's righteousness, so to speak, the fruit of the Spirit, if we might use New Testament terms. Uh, 
If God goes expecting to see the people bear fruit of the character of God, God has come to them and found the exact opposite. The people are not bearing the fruit of the character of God. They're bearing the fruit of injustice, of anger, of hatred. And so God is saying essentially the same thing here. You're, you're fasting and you, you expect that to, to be good, but, but the, the fruit of your fast is still wickedness. It is still unrighteousness. It is still injustice. It is still ignoring the character of God. Is that the fast I choose? God asks. And so God answers the people and says, here's what I would like to see. Or here is the fast that I choose. He says, is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice. To undo the thongs of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free. To break every yoke. It is, not to sh- is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover them. And do not hide yourself from your own kin. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Now I know all of that is not even in our text today, but I think the context bears necessity of reading. Because what we have in our text today, hey Regan, just FYI, my clicker's not working. I don't want it stuck on this, the whole sermon. There could be lots of other images that would be okay, but this one is not the one I want stuck. So <laughs> that would be a better one. If Okay, we're good. Thanks. Thanks, Regan. <laughs> Just got stuck on the wrong image anyway. The, the, the context is important. Because what we have in our text today is God saying, then your light shall break forth like the dawn. Then here is, here is the joy and the wonder that will happen if you are following me rightly. But it bears understanding what it is that God is responding to. That is, there's something that precedes the promise here, right? The promise starts with, then you shall call and the Lord shall answer. Well, for those of you who know grammar at all, there has to be an if before a then in those kinds of statements. What we see here. Is God and Isaiah talking in ways that say there is not a condition to God's love, but there is condition to God's blessing. And I want to be very careful saying that. There is condition on God looking at us and saying you are acting righteously. In this particular instance, The people are saying, God, why don't you hear? And it's not that God is saying, I don't hear. God is saying, I don't respond because you are calling to me and saying you love me and believe in me and follow me. And yet you are doing things that are not of me. God says, you're saying things are going bad and you're coming to me with the veneer of repentance. And yet your lives do not bear out the character that I am trying to form in you. At least as we read here, there is conditions. God, why don't you hear? God says, I hear, but I don't respond because. Because what you are bringing me is not, is not what I really want. 
And God has never said God wants us to, to just go through motions and do religious things just for the sake of them. Nothing we read in the Old Testament says that God established any of the law just because God is capricious and likes to do stuff like that. Nowhere do we read that God set up the Sabbath because God likes to see people not be productive on a given day of the week. That's not what it's about. Nor does God call people to repentance or to fasting or to sacrifice for that matter because God likes people to be really, really humble and crying on the ground. God God doesn't necessarily like that. But what those things represent is what God is after. What is the fast God's choosing? God's saying, I'm not after you not eating. I'm after you being the people you are called, empowered, and sent to be. If you'll recall, when God calls Abraham, way, way back in Genesis, God calls Abraham and says, I am calling you so that you might be a light to the nations. That you might be a blessing to the people around you. What has occurred and what we read about in Isaiah chapter 58 is the people of God being anything but a blessing to the people around them. They have become a curse to the people around them. God God calls out not just uh, injustice, but God calls out oppression. God calls out exploitation. God calls out all sorts of these things and saying... I don't want you not to eat and then exploit other people. I want you to just not exploit other people. Not eating is a way of humbling yourself and placing you under my care, my guidance, and my counsel. But if you go through the motions and expect me to be happy with just the motions, I'm not sure that's okay. Or maybe to put it in another way, the scriptures talk about, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They honor me with with the worship that they bring, and they, they come and they say they delight in the Lord, and yet their hearts are not with me. Their hearts are far from me. And so God says, if you want to see the reaction that you're hoping to see from God out of this fast is choose to fast in a way that shows forth the character and kingdom of God in your midst. In short, be the blessing the children of God are called to be as they live rightly in the world. If it sounds harsh, just just go, again, go back and read Isaiah and the things that are happening with the people, right? They're saying, oh, we're not working on the Sabbath, but they have no problem exploiting the foreigner among them to make them work on the Sabbath, to make them money. God's not particularly concerned with whether or not they work if they're making other people work for their benefit. I hope what you're hearing here is a not that God's love is conditional because God's love isn't conditional. God loves the people of Israel here now forever. God loves us here now forever. That's not going away. And that's not conditional on anything we do. God loves you no matter what you do. Just like parents, we love our kids no matter what they do may not make us happy, but we love them anyway, because love is not conditional. So that's not what's going on here. 
What's going on is the people saying, God, you're not listening. God, you're not doing the things you have promised to do to us when we're faithful. And God is saying, exactly, you're not being faithful. Things are going bad for you because you aren't doing the things I have called you to do. And when you do the things I called you to do, things go better for you. That is how God designed this this world, is that when the people of God are doing the things that God calls them to do, the world just goes better because guess what? God created it. God told us how to live in it. And when we do, it works better. There is blessing out of that. But God certainly is not going to bless us when we are exhibiting character and activity that are contrary to the character and nature of God. It would be wrong for God to bless the people of Israel in this day when they are being exactly opposite of who God has called them to be, a light to the nations, blessing to the people around them. In this case, the blessing is conditional because God's not going to bless evil behavior, even if the lip service is right. Kind of a downer, eh? Not a happy-go-lucky sermon, I get it. But here's the idea. God is connecting these two things, but in Isaiah, we have, it's not a rare glimpse, but a very clear glimpse on what God wants out of our worship. I I, I know I've said this before. I know you've heard it before, but worship is not simply what happens here between 1030 and 12 on a Sunday morning. That is part of worship. That is good worship, but that is not the sum of our worship to God. In fact, as we read, especially in the prophets, what, what God seems to say to us is that what we do out there the other six days of the week is far more important than what we do here on Sunday morning when it comes to right worship. Or to put it a different way, we can sing all the right songs. We can pray all the right prayers. We can do all the right things in the context of this hour and a half and yet miss the mark of what God has called us to do and to be. For what God wants out of us is that what comes out of here matches what we do out there. That the worship we do in here ought to be reflected and embodied in every moment we spend out there. I mean, it should be reflected in every moment we spend in here too, but... Right? That, that our lives should, should bear out, not just that, that we say the right things about God. We can go out there and say we love God, but if we hate our neighbor, what does John say? The truth is not in us. If we don't act out there what we say in here, our worship is empty. I could take it to Amos where, God, where the prophet says, I hate your songs, I hate your gatherings. Because you do injustice. You sing the right songs, but then you do injustice out there. What God wants us is to be a whole people who bear the fruit of the God who is at work in us. That the people who praise God look like the God we praise in some ways. We bear out his character. That we give a taste of, 
of the God who is abounding in steadfast love, right? As we've been talking about in Sunday school. We can never exhibit that fully, but we can be a glimpse of God's kingdom in our world. And, and the prophet and, and God directly, directly connects that way of living with very tangible action towards the very least in our world. What credit is it to you, Jesus says, if we love those who love us? The prophet Isaiah says, is this not the fast I choose to share your bread with the hungry? To welcome them into your homes? Is this not the fast I choose that you satisfy the needs of the afflicted? And the prophet says that if we do those things, if, if we are willing to, to exhibit the character of God to even the very least of those around us, to our neighbors, to our friends, to those we know and those we don't know, God says, then your light will break forth like the dawn. Then the light of God will come and shine upon you. If, if you're wondering where God is, God is desiring to see you do the things and create the world around you that looks like the kingdom of God. If you do this, the light of God will shine upon you. Again, the love of God is not conditional. But aspects of the blessing of God, at least as I read it here, seem to be conditional on how we act, on how we love. The quality of our relationship to God, it doesn't go away when we're sinful, but the quality of that relationship is dependent in some aspects on the way in which we exhibit the character of God to the poor, to the lost, to the least. That's hard for me as a good Protestant to say, but it's in the Bible. Isaiah, Jesus talks about it too, but it's in there. That somehow the quality of our relationship in, with God and the quality of how things are going with us in the world is directly related to whether or not we actually do the things God has called us to do. If Jesus is Lord, we do as the Lord asks. Now, what's this say about worship? Worship is good. Worship here on Sunday mornings is good. The songs we sing, the prayer we pray, the, the rituals we go to, the, the, the communion, the baptism, these are all good things. We don't get rid of them. It's not to say worship is bad. It's not to say we shouldn't gather together and sing songs. It's not saying that what Jesus is saying, or excuse me, what Isaiah is saying is there's a both and going on here. What happens in here and what happens out there are intimately connected and we should do them together. When it, when it comes to this in the New Testament, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he's, he's getting on them because they tithe on their mint and their cumin. He says, you tithe on your mint and your cumin, yet you neglect the weightier issues of the law. Right? Justice for the poor, etc., etc., etc. Jesus doesn't say stop tithing and do those other things. Jesus says you should have done the former, the tithing, without neglecting the latter. Jesus isn't saying, or Isaiah, getting these two mixed up. Isaiah isn't saying don't fast. He's saying, when you fast, make sure you are attending to the matters of justice for the oppressed and doing the things God has called you to do. And he's saying, when that happens, when you follow the way of the Lord in the world, things will go well. 
all the time. No, there'll still be tragedy, but God will be with you. You will know the presence. The light will break on, shine on you. <clears throat> you will be known as a mender of the walls. It's a strange little thing to say, but think about it. We'll be, the people of God will be known as a people who build up rather than tear down. And there's conditions here. God says, I will, I will rebuild your walls and you will be known as menders of the walls. I will, I will shine on you and you will be a blessing to the people around you. There's this both and thing going on that God blesses so that we might bless. If you're wondering what this is all called, there's two words I want to keep in mind. Well, one's a phrase, one's a word. The word is shalom. Shalom, you may know, is the Hebrew word that is loosely translated as peace, but it's more than that. It's well-being. It's when the creation and the world is ordered as God would have it. The people of God doing the things of God and the world being blessed through it. That is shalom. What we, have at the, what we see at the, at the end of Isaiah about the wedding feast of the Lamb, that is shalom. What, what we see in, at, at the end of Revelation, right? The new Jerusalem comes and the, the gates are always open and the people come in and blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is shalom, well-being. This is the kind of world and life to which God has called God's people. I would venture to say, this may be a controversial opinion, that the purpose of the law was shalom in the world, that the people of God and God would, would live in right relationship with one another and the people would live in right relationship with the world and every, the world would be blessed. And this is shalom, the lion will lay down with the lamb. The other phrase I would, not an unfamiliar one, is this is the kingdom of God or the rule of God in the world. When the people of God are doing the things of God, are exhibiting the character of God in the world, that is the kingdom of God inbreaking in our midst and in the midst of this world. We are promised in Jesus that the kingdom of God is in our midst. Well, the kingdom of God is in our midst when we are living under the rule of God, not just doing the right things, not just saying the right words, not just singing the right songs, but exhibiting the character and the fruit of God in the world. And the kingdom of God grows, expands, the world sees and knows. This is the kind of life to which God calls us. When we as a people are not just saying the right words, but doing and embodying this worship, this character of God, things happen in us and around us we find that we are healed and restored and we find that we are known as healers and restorers. We find that we not only are rebuilt, but we find that we are known as those who go and rebuild. This is the kingdom of God in our midst. This is made fully and finally possible by the presence of Christ in our midst, by the presence of the spirit that he gives us, empowers us to do the things of God in our world. It's no, it's no like accident that when we hear what the fruit of the spirit is, it's all things that have, have implications for how we live our lives in the world around us, right? The fruit of the spirit, love. Love has implications, not just here on Sunday morning. But every day out there, joy, 
Joy is the character of a people who, who, who don't deny bad things are happening, but, but take joy in the faithfulness of our Lord God who is with us always, even in the worst of times. Peace, patience, kindness. It's odd to say that kindness should characterize Christians because I'm not sure that's the characterization people around the world are feeling right now. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. That is the spirit at work in us, creating in us the things and the actions of God. Is this not the fast I choose? You share your bread with the hungry. God doesn't want us just to give lip service. God wants us to embody God's character in the world all around us so that our commitments, our lives, show forth and proclaim the kingdom of God, the shalom of God that is in our midst. The good news in all of this is that the God who calls you is faithful and he will do this. It seems impossible sometimes. But the God who calls us is faithful. And God will do this. So, we're not fasting today because we're having potluck. That's good. But let us remember, it is good to place ourselves in humble submission before God. The difference between Nineveh and Israel, at least at this point, is that Nineveh said, we really are humbled before God. God, we want to do the things that you have called us to do because we are obviously wrong. What happened in Israel, at least in Isaiah 58, is the people saying, God, we're not eating. Bless us. God wants to see us embody the things of God's own kingdom. Yes, through things like fasting, we should still as God calls us to do fast. Here, Isaiah connects God's blessing with keeping of the Sabbath, so we ought to do that. Set time aside, set days aside to focus on God, not just sit around, twiddle our thumbs, going, I can't work today, I can't wait till I can go to work. But a day to delight in the Lord. And as we delight in the Lord, as we submit to the Lord, what happens? God shows us ways forward empowers us and sends us out that we might be God's own people in the world so that the world might get a taste of God's shalom, God's kingdom, God's vision of well-being, what the rule of God truly looks like as we worship in tangible ways of love to our brothers and sisters in this world. And I would venture to say, as Christ has said, by the quality of our love in here and out there, all people will know that we are his disciples. And we are his disciples. He is king, ruler, guide, leader. It is him we follow. As the worship comes back up, let us take the next few moments to pray, to ponder, and to ask God 
what areas God would lead us into as individuals and as community. How might God be calling us to not simply sing the right songs? We have sung some right songs this morning. But to allow God and God's spirit to fill us that we might take our worship from here out there and embody God's character in the world around us.